Don't you hear that? Don't you hear that? 
welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Led Zeppelin. And since I've been loving you from Led Zeppelin Free, I've got Richard Digby-Smith here. He's got a remarkable book about his life and uh, times in the recording industry, 1234, The Life and Times of Recording Studio Engineer. And of course, Digby was there at the very moment Robert Plant was laying down his vocals at Ireland's Basing Street Studios. Welcome, Digby. Nice to be with you, Jason. It's an absolute pleasure. It's quite a remarkable story of you uh, left school, travelling down from uh, your hometown of Birmingham to London to get a job. And uh, you, you made it into Island Studios. And uh, very soon you were watching Robert laying down that incredible, incredible vocals. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, I was... Um... Back in Birmingham in the late 60s, 1969 specifically, I mean, I was a, and still am, a punter and a fan of music. And uh, I had Zeppelin records at home. And as indeed, I had loads of albums at home that were on the Island record label. And I decided I wanted to get into the studio business. I had a little setup at home in my bedroom and a little tape machine. And I was, Figured I was going to be the next Paul McCartney or some some such strange idea I had. But anyway, I wrote off to uh, literally dozens of recording studios in London. Had no luck. But in the book, I go on, I go into detail about how I found myself working for the newly formed Island Record label, who had built their own recording studios, and this was uh, uh, unique for such a such a young independent record label to have its own recording studios and i was one of the first uh, assistant engineers to be employed working at that studio and as well as all the island artists that were signed to the label mm. the reputation of the studio soon developed in a very positive way and we were finding ourselves getting booking inquiries from pretty much every, uh, all the top artists of the day not least of all led zeppelin a large part of uh, zepp 3 was mixed at basing street and some of it uh, some of it was recorded there the track you've you've just played for example and i was uh, having initially been employed as chief T-boy, uh, mailroom, uh, van driver, uh, I pretty quickly got my teeth into being what was known in those days as being a tape operator, what we would affectionately call an assistant engineer today. Yeah. And some of the early sessions I got booked in to assist uh, with the late, great Andy Johns, uh, the engineer, uh, was on the, the Led Zeppelin three sessions. And the one particular evening that I was in the studio with the band was the night that uh, Robert decided he was in the mood to have a go at the vocal on Since I've Been Loving You, which I have to say is my all-time ever favourite Led Zeppelin track. It must have been incredible watching Robert laying down those vocals. It's one of the best vocal performances ever, really. It was... For those of us lucky enough to be witness to Robert Plant not just recording a vocal as a vocal overdub to a track, but watching Robert do a vocal performance 
before our eyes. When you're in an environment like that, the atmosphere is electric and you have to constantly, certainly as part of the engineering crew, you have to constantly pinch yourself and remind yourself that you are actually at work. There's a function required of you. Uh, but at that particular evening, Andy, the engine, the main engineer, instructed me to set up a, a Neumann U87 microphone for those technically interested. It was a Neumann microphone, a pair of Bayer headphones, yeah. gave Robert a little table to put his glass of water on so he was comfortable, put a few sound screens around, uh, around the back just to deaden the sound a little and uh, went back into the control room, uh, hit play and record, and Robert delivered the vocal performance that we all can listen to and enjoy to this day. And I remember looking around in the control room, and there was Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones and John Bonham and Andy. And I don't know what the collective noun is for a, a group of dropped jaws, but that's what that was the, the visual uh, spectacle in the control room was that everybody was just almost literally spellbound and Robert delivered the vocal took off the headphones walked back up into the control room we wound back the tape pressed play and listened to it again as if we needed convincing that we had just witnessed something quite magical the first thing Robert said to Jimmy Page was um is it good enough? Because if it's not, I'll, I'll go and do it again. And I remember Jimmy just looking at Robert and mm. just smiling and saying, yes, it's fine, Robert. It will do. It'll more than do. So Robert was suitably uh, assured. Mm. And the first thing that he did, and here's a bit of rock and roll history for your listeners, Jason. The first thing Robert Plant did after he delivered that that spectacular vocal was that he went downstairs in the kitchen and made everybody a cup of tea. So I'm sorry if I've, uh, if I've shattered a lot of people's illusions of the glamour, <laughs> the glamour of the world of rock and roll, but it was, uh, it, it was what Robert felt he wanted to do to show that he was, uh, just still good friends with us all. And whenever I hear that, I'm, um, I find myself uncontrollably attracted to the, the kettle in our kitchen. Brilliant. It seems such a short period of time from being a, a tape op there to actually assisting with, with various things, uh, making the tea, to, to actually engineering and co-producing with Bronco. We're playing here uh, New Day Avenue, a fine track from the Ace of Sunlight LP. That was the wonderful, remarkable unique experience Jason of working for Island Records uh, at their Basin Street headquarters they had in the founder of the label Chris Blackwell a most remarkable man a most kind generous and creative man and he encouraged all of us young engineers and equally so all the people that work for the label you know we were all pretty much given carte blanche to, to go ahead and, and, and be creative. Essentially, what Chris did was give the keys to the studio to us young engineers, lock us away in the studio with one of the artists and tell us to take as much time as we like, make an album, record whatever we want, take as long as we need and come out with an album. 
And it was just the most wonderful, creative atmosphere. And as a part of that journey, one of my first assistant engineering jobs was assisting for the engineer Brian Humphreys on a Bronco album. And as was the case at that time, bands, the island bands, often were having to record, uh, were contractually obliged to have to record maybe two albums a year. So it was only a matter of months before Bronco were back in the studio to record their Ace of Sunlight album. And I must have suitably impressed the guys in the band enough for them to request me as the main engineer. And in the absence of um, of an external producer sitting in on the sessions, I found myself um, on the talkback mic co-producing the album with the band. So from T-Boy van driver, mailroom operative in January of 1970. By the summer of 1970, I'd gone on to produce, engineer and produce my first album, which was Ace of Sunlight.
incredible moments just keep coming and a band that will just live on forever they're free and um, I've picked Wishing Well from the Heartbreaker album but I think you worked with free and uh, at least one of the side projects previous years too so a, a band that you've had quite an association with again Jason I have to say prior to moving to London in 1970 to, to join the island the island team I was a massive fan of free back in my hometown of Birmingham and to be in the recording studio with that particular band was almost literally a dream come true for me and um, I had been one of the assistants on the Highway album Andy Johns was the engineer and then I think the next album down the track with them was the the Free at Last album Mm. which was getting to the close to the point when I think the band was considering uh, uh, disbanding. Uh, They'd had a huge success with All Right Now, and that seemed difficult to to follow up that success. After the Free at Last album, Simon the drummer and Paul Kossoff the guitarist took a bit of a break from playing in Free and got together with Japanese bassist Tetsu and Texan keyboardist John Rabbit Bundrick. And with myself as engineer, uh, we produced the uh, Kossoff Kirk Tetsu Rabbit album. After the Kossoff Kirk Tetsu Rabbit album, we got back in the studio with Free, albeit with a slightly adjusted lineup. We uh, we had uh, Tetsu on bass and uh, additional guitar with with uh, Snuffy Waldron, Texan friend of uh, Rabbit's, and of course Rabbit on keyboards. Uh, quite an emotionally charged studio environment for that record, quite the antithesis of the Kossoff Kirk Tetsu Rabbit album. The Heartbreaker record was was very deeply intense, very emotional for everybody. And it put huge pressures on me as a young engineer. I think it was the first the first album that I ever did that I remember thinking afterwards, wow, this is this isn't easy this isn't always easy, is it, uh, capturing all this all this creativity. Uh, but we managed to do it and I always feel when I li- when I listen to that album, um, it puts me right back in that space and time. I think it comes across as being quite uh, quite an emotionally charged piece of of work. But of course, the creative process, although you may not be aware of it at the time when you're immersed in it, the process often benefits from that sort of uh, high intensity emotion, and uh, I'd like to think it comes across on that record, particularly with uh, Wishing Well.
incredible vocal performance next with Jimmy Cliff, Many Rivers to Cross from the Harder They Come album, which uh, you worked on with Jimmy. It was hard to pick a track from that album because so mm. many standards really now. Again, a bit like watching Robert do his vocals for Since I've Been Loving You. It must have been a remarkable moment to watch Jimmy Cliff recording his vocals for that album. Indeed he was, Jason, although a stark contrast in styles and um, Jimmy was uh, very much a daytime kind of a person. Uh, he would invariably come to the studio at 10 or 11 a.m. in the morning and work through till lunchtime and then be be out of there by 2 o'clock. So these, they were invariably short morning sessions. I think word must have gotten to Chris Blackwell, the label boss, that perhaps I had a good ear for vocals. I know Jess Roden in Bronco was very complimentary to me, bless him, when he recorded his vocals, how much he enjoyed um, having me behind the desk. And I think Jess might have put in a good word for me because I found myself uh, picked as the engineer of choice for the for those Jimmy Cliff sessions, doing the vocals for the soundtrack for the movie, uh, The Harder They Come. And Jimmy was as delightful, cheerful guy as you could ever hope to be in the studio with uh, no... A complete absence of ego and uh, and self. He was uh, just genuinely uh, kind and easy to work with. Uh, again, you know, Jimmy, it'd just be one or two takes, and then maybe just pick the best of the two, or or glue together the, the combination of the two takes. But it, it was quite the antithesis of, of perhaps the heartbreaker sessions. Was uh, was my time spent with Jimmy, and I still uh, have to pinch myself every time I go in the dining room and see uh, see uh, my Jimmy Cliff gold record hanging on the wall. Just 
You mentioned the absence of ego with Jimmy Cliff and as opposed to band with a lot of big characters and Humble Pie. Um, what, what was it like working with Humble Pie? I, th- I think you, you recorded the, the, the album Rock On mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be playing Shine On uh, next. The, uh, the benefit I enjoyed of working on the Humble Pie sessions was that the main engineer was Glyn Johns. And he is uh, for anybody that know, knows their uh, knows their recording studio onions or their their musical history. Mm. This is a guy who's just stood head and shoulders above almost everybody else in terms of his CV. You know, having worked with the Beatles and the Stones, so Glyn was um, a wonderful master craftsman for me to work with, and I learned so much from working with Glyn. Glyn had a very no nonsense, no frills approach to to recording, and um, his expectations of what the band could deliver were very high. I go into some detail in the book about some uh, some uh, Glyn John's anecdotes, and uh, uh, particularly in relation to these humble pie sessions. But uh, it was under the the masterful almost scholarly control of Glyn Johns that all the participants of Humble Pie knew exactly what was expected of them and there were, uh, and nobody dared jump out of line. So uh, it was a masterclass in pulling rank, shall we say, with the way Glyn, Glyn's masterful handling of, of all those uh, egos in that studio.
and from Glyn Johns, we go to working with Andy Johns and back to Led Zeppelin again and Stairway to Heaven. But reading 1234, it seems incredible that it was just um, some, someone calling in sick, which, which led you to working on that track. Again, it's that fickle finger of fate, isn't it, that comes and just gives us a little poke in the eye now and again. I had, I mean, the the hours we used would be working in the studio would would be lengthy and constant. Uh, having said that, it, it was no hardship. It was a, a labour of love. I mean, you know, I'm working for the best record label on the planet in the best recording studio in London. So what was it to complain about? But I had just come to the end of a very long, I think about a three-week stint of sort of 15, 16, maybe even longer hour days and was due a couple of days off. But the phone rang and it was the studio manager, S. She informed me that the assistant engineer booked in on the evening session had phoned him sick and that I would have to come in to deputize for him. And uh, I wasn't too happy because I was looking forward to to my first night off in, in several weeks. But um, I wasn't in a position to argue. I said to, um, I think it was Sally, Sally Whiteman, the studio manager. I said to Sally, okay, I'm on my way. Who's the band? She said, it's the Zet Boys. I said, I'm on my way. I just, you know, it's just, it's amazing where you can get the energy from uh, to come into work when you know you're going to be in the studio with those guys. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. But the guy who, who phoned in sick, Bob, he would probably never forget or depping for him that night. Cause of, of all the nights that he should have been on the Zep sessions, it was that mm. night because it was the night they recorded stairway to heaven. What's this about you having, um, a little bit of a shaping role on the, the guitar solo. <laughs> it's, it's all in the book, Jason. There was, um, <laughs> the, again, I, where to start with all that. Basically stairway to heaven was, uh, was was two takes and it was the second take that was used but somewhere in a a tape vault somewhere and probably atlantic records have got it there is a take one of the backing track of stairway to heaven which would have been slightly different drums slightly different um, acoustic guitar and no doubt the bass but uh, they they were encouraged by jimmy to go for a second take which uh, uh i can't say Bonham particularly was too pleased about because I think he thought he delivered his best on take one. Um, I go into detail in the book. It's quite uh, quite an interesting uh, story in terms of of a of, mm. of production technique employed by Jimmy Page to to get the the magic of the track that we all know and love. The guitar overdubs. Once we got the backing track, uh, John Paul Jones. But the uh, I don't know, I think they're recorders, aren't they? I was going to say flutes, but the recorders were overdubbed. Mm. Um, some additional uh, rhythm guitars, and then came the time to put. As best I recall, uh, Robert may have put a guide vocal on that night, but I didn't didn't have the pleasure of watching him uh, deliver that masterful uh, vocal master take. But mm. um, I did get to to uh, press record on uh, Jimmy doing the guitar solo for it. Although I should point out at this juncture that my my dear friend, Phil Brown, 
who also has a, a book out about his life and times in the recording studio. I'll, I won't give him the luxury of me giving his book a plug, but it, you know it's available out there. What the hell? I'll give it a and the podcast. It's on. Yeah, it's on give, your give pod- it a plug. It's fabulous. You've covered it. It's, a, it's on the podcast as well. <clears throat> it's a very detailed um, diary, really. In effect, Phil uh, recalls how Jimmy Page booked some additional time at Basing Street and redid the guitar solos. As to which guitar solos were used, whether it was from my night in the studio with him or the subsequent sessions with Phil, I guess only only Jimmy Page uh, would know would know that. But we, Jimmy certainly had a stab at the guitar solo on on the night they recorded the backing track. And as is often the case with uh, multi-track recording and overdubbing of guitar solos, I think Jimmy took three swipes at the guitar solo and then came back into the control room and sat next to Andy to listen back to the guitar solos and pick which one they'd want to use. And as is often the case, you want to use a bit of take one, maybe a bit of take three. There was a nice little phrase in the middle of take two that, Jimmy really liked, but we couldn't get it to marry up with the other takes. So I think it was basically a combination of takes one and three. But at which point, in in an uncharacteristic moment of bravado, I stuck my nose in and I said to Jimmy and Andy, I think you could get that guitar phrase on take two to fit if you change like half a bar earlier and, and switch back sort of half a bar later. I remember Andy giving me a little sort of a, he was a little askew and, uh, but Jimmy encouraged me. He said, show me what you mean. And I got behind the desk Andy very generously moved to one side. So there I am sitting behind the, the big console in Island Basing Street Studio One, sitting next to Jimmy Page, compiling the guitar solo. And I successfully managed to, incorporate Jimmy's favorite bit from take two into the guitar solo. I convince myself now, Jason, when I listen to Stairway to Heaven, that it is, that it is my guitar, that it was not my guitar solo, but that I was a party to the, to the compilation of that guitar mm. solo. But um, I might have to just take my hat off to, to Phil Brown and, uh, and relinquish that um, claim. But Jimmy was suitably impressed. And I have to say, what a lovely guy. I mean, you know, you think of these, you mentioned earlier about massive egos and things. And you think with, you know, the the biggest band on the planet, you know, Jimmy Page, Robert Plant, and John Paul Jones and John Bonham, you'd think that the room would be just swollen with egos, but it just wasn't the case. Mm. Jimmy just so focused on on the work that was needing to be done robert focused on his you know the vocal department bonham everybody doing what they were hired to do so it was a very strong work ethic and uh, and i think i must have impressed jimmy page enough that um, about a week later he booked some more time for a, a, another project he was working on this wasn't a, a Zep session, but Jimmy booked some time to for a track he wanted mixing, and uh, he requested my good self as being his engineer. So I did a couple of days with uh, Jimmy as as his engineer. So I was again flattered.
All that glitters is gold And she's buying a stairway to heaven When she gets there she knows If the stores are all closed With a word she can't get
The uh, legendary names just keep on coming. Next we have Stephen Stills from his second album, I think. Or certainly the Stephen Stills 2 album. And uh, a great track from that, Fishes and Scorpions. But not only did Stephen feature on that track, the names of other artists that featured on that album, as well as that track, is is again quite remarkable. That was a perfect example of how... uh big the reputation of Ireland's Basing Street studio was becoming. There was a guy walked into the studio one evening who was looking to book some studio time and we gave him a guided tour of the studio and he came back the next day and booked several weeks of studio time and recorded his first solo album, Stephen Stills One, for Atlantic Records. It was very early on in my career at Basing Street. I think I was sort of, I was still at the T-boy stage, but um, I wasn't going to miss that for the world. So I I found myself assisting the assistant engineers. But a year later, 
the whole entourage returned to London to record Stephen's uh, imaginatively named second solo album, Stephen Stills 2. And um, hmm. the American engineer, Bill Halverson, uh, got me as his assistant engineer. Although at that time, I had transcended into the realms of being a full-time first engineer. Once in a while, a project would come through and, and maybe yeah. due to the staff uh, rotors and things, you, you, uh, I was asked, would I, would I mind sort of stepping back down the career ladder and, and reverting to being an assistant engineer? And I thought, well, for to work with Stephen Stills and Bill Halverson, there's no hardship, uh, no hardship yeah. there. Uh, and as I say, I think I devote pretty much a whole chapter to the Stephen Stills 2 uh, album. There's many amazing experiences that took place yeah. in the recording of that album. And we had just about a list of the who's who of the of the record world at the time. I mean, Eric Clapton, Billy Preston, Ringo Starr, the Memphis Horns. I mean, it was just a remarkable experience. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was just so busy with the, the duties associated with being a, a, an assistant engineer on such a high, high-powered, high-octane sessions, such as with Stephen Stills. You know, I wish I'd have got a bunch of autographs, but uh, I just simply didn't have time. You know, you're constantly moving microphones, setting up microphones, threading reels of tape. Moving, swapping reels of tape, you know, it was just, uh, it's, it was three weeks of arduous bliss working with, uh, with Stephen and, and the band. And, uh, I go into detail about a couple of, couple of, uh, mildly amusing stories about, uh, about, uh, Ringo Starr and, uh, and Billy Preston. Another surprise visitor to Studio One on the Stephen Stills 2. Uh, solo album was no less than Graham Nash from the Hollies who came, who popped down one night and did some harmony vocals. Well, let's uh, let's listen to Fishes and Scorpions, which uh, from Stephen Stills, but mm. I believe that Eric Clapton's on that particular song. Yeah. 
So next we have Sparks and uh, brilliant, brilliant single. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. So you were Muff Winwood's Muff, Muff was a producer and you were engineer on that. Muff Winwood, uh, formerly of the Spencer Davis Group, was involved with Ireland from the from the very very early days. And Chris Blackwell appointed Muff as as a senior A and R executive. So. Muff used to um, bring a lot of bands into the studio, um, not least of all uh, Sparks. And myself and another in-house engineer at the studio, Tony Platt, between us, me and Tony, were always Muff's first first go-to uh, port of call for an engineer. So I did a lot of stuff with Muff. And uh, it, again, such a great guy to learn all the tricks of the trade from his mm. his relaxed production style very musically driven having been a, a bass player in a pretty successful band himself i think he you know he, he knew a lot about music and uh, so learned a lot of stuff off muff oddly enough the spark sessions were uh, Certainly on the Kimono My House album, we didn't record those at Basic Street Muff. Uh, I think possibly the studios were just fully booked with other clients. So Muff dragged me off to Ramport Studios in in South London as his engineer. And uh, I have to say, it was um, a unique experience working with the the Male Brothers. I'd never heard music like that Mm. before. I think there were a few raised eyebrows at the record label, but Muff just had, he had the ears. He had an ear, he had ears for a hit Hmm. and he wasn't wrong, was he, with Sparks? He knew Hmm. there was just something magical about these guys. It was something unique. So yeah, we recorded the whole album at Ramport, came back to Basin Street, did a bunch of overdubs. Again, I think Tony, Tony Platinum might have been a couple of the other island engineers got involved so i wasn't exclusively involved in kimono but uh, yeah very much remember the recording of uh, this town a muff's unique production approach seemed to gel uh, with the male brothers particularly with with ron mm. who's classically trained somewhat sort of mathematical approach to music so, you know we, we we all connected very well on that 
I always liken the recording of this town, Ain't Big Enough, as being a bit like a paint-by-numbers exercise. Once we'd got the backing track recorded, and it's a pretty tricky arrangement, there's some some demanding sort of tempo changes and stuff. So hats off to Dinky Diamond, the drummer. He did a he did a, a wonderful uh, a wonderful job, and Martin Gordon on bass and Adrian on guitar. Yeah, they did a they did a great job cutting that track and getting the backing track was pretty much done in in, in one piece. But the overdubs. All the different guitar parts, all the different guitar sounds. It's like I list, I can pick out certain riffs of the guitar that I would liken to the number seven, which would be all blue. And so you just go through the tune and you find all the number sevens and you paint those in while you've got the blue on your brush. Then you go to another color guitar sound, hmm. the yellow, which would be perhaps number 11. And then you find all the parts of the song that need that have got number 11 written alongside them and you over you drop those in so we pieced it together in a sort of modular kind of a way i always sense that when i li- listen to the record you know um that it's uh not to say it's it's devoid of any emotion far from it but it was so complicated a piece of music to record that muff's sort of almost mathematical approach to to the production was essential to the way the the, mm. the final record turned out, and Ron and Russell completely went along with it, you know. And I think the results speak for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I found out, and there was a Muff reminded me many years later. I completely forgot. It shows you how, you know, what a busy time it was, and you, so many sessions that would. Uh, you know, you sometimes didn't know whether you, to coin an old phrase, you didn't know whether you were in Woolworths or Boots sometimes. You know, am I working on a John Martin album today or am I back in with mm. Sparks or is it the Southern? So you just kind of come in in the morning, look on the board in Sally's office and see what session you were working on. So sometimes we'd be recording two, three albums at a time, Jace. You know, it was, uh, mm. it was uh, like a hit production factory you know and uh, but muff remind and i'd completely forgotten this that on this town there's the sound of gunshots and muff reminded me many years later that it, that had been my idea and then it kind of came back to me on first hearing the song if only because of the nature of the lyrics i thought there was something of a of a sort of that famous western movie high noon there was something of a of a conflict of uh, one person having to get out of town. So I half jokingly suggested, oh, it'd be great with some gunshots on it, wouldn't it? You know, like shoot out of the OK Corral. And um, and Muff announced the lunch break and took everybody out for a, for a, a fish and chip lunch around the corner. And, and he said, go ahead and uh, find some gunshot sounds and, and see what you come up with. So when everybody was out the room, I found a couple of old sound effect records and uh, captured a couple of gunshots on a, onto a piece of tape and flew them into the record where I thought they might work. And um, lo and behold, I'm a, a, a participating member in that classic track, albeit, <laughs> albeit in a non-musical, a non-musical sense. Zoo time, Miss Sheehan, you time, the 
over to uh, LA by the mid 70s and we have now Robert Palmer some people could do what they like from that same album am I right to say that was kind of a, a mixed period for you mixed would be um, would be the polite way of saying it yes I'd first <laughs> gone to America in 1972 as a fresh faced 21 year old with an island band head hands and feet I accompanied them on their US tour as front of house mixer and um, I fell in love with America but particularly California and spent the next several years spending as much time as I could in California in fact I say in the book every time I every time I I got 500 quid I just went to TWA in Piccadilly and bought a plane ticket and just Mm. to the point where by the by the mid seventies, I was spending almost as much time in LA as I was in London. And on a couple of occasions, I, I even commuted between London and, and LA. By 
76, I was spending more time in LA than in London, and that's where I bumped into uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama producer Steve Smith. And uh, Steve invited me to engineer on, on the Robert Palmer album. Some people can do what they like, which we recorded at certainly my involvement with it was at Clover Studios in Hollywood. And um, pretty kind of high octane, riotous rock and roll kind of stuff which again all all the gory details are, are in are in the book but i'm always at pains to point out and i must do this swiftly i wouldn't include robert in the mayhem and, pan, oh, okay. and pandemonium because he was so level-headed and he rose above all the uh, madness and craziness that uh, that ensued on the recording of, of that particular album. So hats off to Robert for being the, the perfect gentleman. And uh, as I say, uh, delve into detail in the book. Fortunately, I don't think we got a hit off that record, but his next album mm. is when things really started happening for Robert.
And we have such a contrast from the um, crazy times of LA to um, <laughs> a wet Newcastle in the in the mid nineteen eighties. Yeah. You'd move back to, I think, London, and uh, you work working with Prefab Sprout on uh, their protest songs LP, and uh, great track here, "Life of Surprises." Um, so you moved back to London in was it the early eighties or something, and and got back in into kind of um, working on records over here. Then I spent nine years, I guess, at, uh, based in Los Angeles, although I was still coming back to London and, and uh, Canada and uh, other parts of the world that I was found myself fortunate enough to be working in. But uh, by 1984, I think it was time to take a break from uh, from my LA lifestyle, should we say. So I uh, somewhat reluctantly, but uh, out of necessity, came back to the UK. And uh, when I came back to London, in 84, I popped to uh, Sony Records, I think was where Muff Winwood was working at the time. And Muff was happy to see me. And bless him, I could never have been too far from his mind when it came to engineering with his bands because he very kindly put me in touch with, with Paddy McAloon of Prefab Sprout and sent us off up to Newcastle to a studio that was a that was on an industrial estate at Strighton. There was a there was a factory uh, of machinery that was directly underneath the studio. So if you listen on one of the tracks, we used some of the indus the sound of the industrial machinery to in- introduce the song. I think it's Cows Come Home, and uh, also uh, had previously worked with Neil. Conti, the drummer, I'd worked with Neil before on a couple of sessions. He was he was a top session guy, a great, great player, and uh, I can understand why Paddy would have employed his services, Neil. And just a, a most delightful two weeks in the Newcastle area, listening to Paddy's wonderful, wonderful musical caricatures that he writes out and, you know, the great musicianship. Uh, it was a pleasure to record and was uh, quite a, a, a soothing audio bandage for my somewhat damaged uh, brain on my return from uh, from from LA. And um, Paddy was so pleased with, with the record, which initially had been to be as a, a demo of the album to follow, I believe, the Steve McQueen album. But Paddy was so, he was so pleased with the songs we had recorded, he didn't want to re-record them. And he, uh, but the label sent the guys into the, the studio to do the follow-up album to Steve McQueen, which I had some minor involvement with, but not, not to the extent that I did with protest songs. So in actual fact, protest songs comes out after Langley Park to Memphis, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, it came out later, didn't it? Yes. But um, again... I mean, I can't. I have to say, I don't think I've ever recorded an album that that, that was horrible to make that I can't listen to mm. for fear of, of the dread of having made it returning. It's it's never been like that. I've been fortunate that ninety nine percent of the musicians and artists I've been lucky enough to be in the studio with, I've enjoyed it immensely. But once in a while, a record comes along that's even even more special than what they all are. 
and that protest song would have to be in my top top five of all time favorite records to have ever worked on. Wow, it's a great sounding record. It's yeah, it was, um, and the, one of the quickest records. I think it was two weeks from start to finish, recorded, mi- overdubbed, mixed. Wow. There were no remixes, no going back, no going back, redoing stuff, no pressure from the record label. Uh, it was what Paddy wanted. He was happy with it. Done, dusted, a joy. You can keep the good times, righteousness, the best part in life, rather than pretend we are A1. Ultra fine, shall I be the first then? What we have found There's something in our lifetime Won't let us settle down No new radical impulse Turn inward On itself Just say that you were happy As happy Would allow And tell yourself that We'll have to Do for now
by the mid 90s you were at abbey road with reef and um, we have year old here from well it was it was a massive album glow my book pretty much starts with my um, dream back in 1964 when the i first heard the beatles first album please please me that my sister had bought and played on her record player in her bedroom and when i heard the sound of that record coming through the the speaker in the lid of her old dance record player and i i think it was 64 was it or 63 mm. please please me anyway all the dates are in the book and when i heard that track the first track on the first side of the first Beatle album is I saw her standing there and it starts off with Paul McCartney counting in the track going one, two, three, four. That was the inspiration for the title of the book. And when I heard that track as a 13, 14 year old boy, I wanted so badly to be part of what I was listening to. And I knew even then that that record had been recorded at EMI's own studios on Abbey Road in, in Northwest London. And I vowed that one day I was going to work in that studio. It was to be many, many years till that dream came true. And again, it was as a, as a result of a phone call from Muff Winwood. He said, I've got this great new band I'm working with. We've done a couple of records, but bad to go in the studio to do another album. And it's right up your street, Digby. He, and he put me together. I met the guys and the producer, George Draculas, and met the guys in the band, went to the rehearsals. I waited for to be told which studio we were going to book into. And when I got the phone call that we were booked into Abbey Road Studio 2, I nearly fainted hmm. because that was literally uh, my wildest dream came true. I tell a couple of stories about my experiences of, of being in that that hallowed temple of sound that is Abbey Road, and um, still has to be you know one of my greatest achievements. Certainly, one of my most pleasurable achievements was to work on that Glow album with Reef in none other than Studio Two at, at Abbey Road.
we've got to our final track and um, and an artist who again has got us to very strong association with the Ireland label, Cat Stevens, uh, then and now known as Yusuf Islam. Yes. And uh, quite a, a moving track, The Little Ones. But I think you had a, a hand hand in that track. I wasn't aware that it was ever released uh, because at the time I was uh, involved with a publishing company in London which was run by a chap called Francis Pettican, who was a, who had previously been head of Island Music's publishing department. And Francis had started up his own publishing company, Westwood Stroke Fairwood Music. And one of his clients was Cat Stevens, later, as you say, to be uh, Youssef Islam. And Francis put me and Youssef together because... As a consequence of his conversion to Islam, at that particular time in Yusuf's life, he was positively discouraged from writing music, but was still writing lyrics. And he approached me with the lyrics to The Little Ones, which was his response to the dreadful child killings in Dunblane, Scotland. And he presented me with these lyrics and I wrote some, I wrote, well, I wrote three pieces of music to go with the lyrics to give him three options. One was quite poppy. Another was, I think it was quite sort of psychedelic. And the third one, third version I did, the third type uh, music uh, accompaniment to his lyrics and he's, he sang the melody and given me the a tape of just him singing it a cappella. The third option I gave him, I had recorded in the style of Morning Has Broken, which had been one of his big hits mm. in a sort of, a, I don't know, three, four or six, eight temp, uh, time signature. And that was the one he liked. But to my knowledge, there was um, a disagreement about the assignment of the publishing rights between uh, Francis and Youssef. So the way it was left, to, to my knowledge, uh, it, it was never used. But hopefully you're going to surprise me now. Uh, I am. Jason, and, and tell me that, that it did get used and that I'm credited for writing the music. I need to go into the uh, the, the credits, but no. yes, it was released on um, a little-known, um, I think it was a charity album in the year 2000. Um, I think there was a, a range of songs by a range of artists, um, and it was. I think it was a bit of an anti-war theme. Oh, okay. And uh, the album is I Have No Cannons That Roar, and this song sort of fits very nicely al- oh. alongside that, and um, it's very moving. It's, regardless of whether they uh, used to have used my music or not, I mean, again, it's... You know, I'm not easily surprised anymore. You know, and Yusef would have would have made he would have made the right decision as to what music he wanted to use. So it wouldn't surprise me if he if he approached somebody else for it. But I'm pleased, as pleased for Yusef that the track did get released because it's a it's a beautiful lyric. So thank you so much for your time, Digby. I was so impressed and and reading one two three four the life and times a recording studio engineer. A remarkable story and some great insights into working with so many great artists and uh, moments in time that will live on in uh, music history forever. 
Thank you so much, Digby, for your time. It's been my pleasure, Jason. Thank you for thank you for inviting me on. Fantastic. No, thank you. Cheers. Thank you then. Bye bye. Bye, Jason. Oh, they've killed all the little ones while their faces still smiled. With their guns and the fury, they erased their young lives. No longer to laugh, no longer to be a child. Oh, they've killed all the little ones while their faces still smiled. Now they're burying the little ones and they're making the graves deep so the world cannot see that tonight we may sleep while they wash away the blood the mothers all weep oh they're burying the little ones and they're making the graves deep oh they're burying the little ones and the making the graves deep. Yet where will the devils go when that day comes when the angels drag them out to face the little ones? Oh, they've killed all the little ones with their eyes open wide. There was nothing to help them on the day that they died. No bed to run under, no cupboard to hide Oh, they've killed all the little ones with their eyes open wide They'll be raising the little ones with no sin to atone In the light of high heaven they will sit on tall thrones Where playtime lasts forever and God's mercy never ends They'll be raising the little ones And they'll all be best friends They'll be raising the little ones And they'll all be best friends Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you. Thank you.